Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. For these happy pilots, triumph or defeat gains equally cheers of those who die beyond glory of any sort. Raymond Joubert, Bourdon, Verdun, 1916. Welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast episode Seven dogfights over death ground. First, a uh, big shout out to listener JK, who has fully recovered from his surgery, or at least I think he has, because he is now right back on the mat like nothing ever happened. Glad to see you back, buddy. All right, last episode. I said I'd cover what had been happening in the air since the start of the Battle of Verdun. So, here we go. Now, a project like this is an excellent way to really learn the whole breadth of a subject because in order for you to make your best effort at subject matter expertise, you need to study all of the available angles, stories, and sub-stories that are part of it. And you may get lucky and discover a fascinating story within the story, something that will take your breath away. The air war over Verdun is that fascinating story. This was a time of transition and developing tactics involving larger air units, but throughout the battle, the man-to-man -man dogfights that we know of World War I that uh, took place in the skies over the poisoned death ground of the battlefield at Verdun, enthralled the men on the ground. World War I fighter pilots really were a type of hybrid early 20th century knight and rock star. Individual fighters whose worth was proved by a lot of luck and a lot of skill. The best riflemen on the ground could be blown to bits by an unseeing, unthinking artillery shell just had his name on it. But the pilot had much more control over his own destiny. In the skies, his skills, his training, and his experience could see him out of even the toughest fights. His life expectancy might be an average of two weeks, but they were two weeks that would be lived fiercely, independently, and where the sky was really no longer the limit. It sounds romantic, because in a way it really was. Fighter pilots back then, just like today, were the elite of the battlefield. No muddy, unshaven poilus or Frontschweine here. 
These guys were frequently dashing, handsome, hard-drinking womanizers who slept in clean chateaus well behind the front. Life as a pilot was really good. Aerial combat in the early years of World War I and into the early months of 1916 was very often a sportsman's affair of may the best man win. Many times, German, British, French, Belgian, and American pilots tried not to kill their enemy, but to only kill their machines and force them out of the sky. It was a real chivalry to the whole thing. I mean, to the point where when the great German ace Oswald Bolker was killed, Allied pilots flew over his airfield to drop wreaths in honor of their slain opponent. This was not the mindless and personal killing that we've been seeing for the last months at Verdun. So combat in the skies above the trenches could be seen as kind of the jousting between the knights. Don't get me wrong, there was plenty of killing done by the Germans and the Allies against each other. The point of the air war was to achieve and maintain air superiority in order to assist with observation and artillery spotting for the ground pounders. The pilots didn't take to the air with the intention of slaughtering their enemies a la von Falkenhayn and bleeding the French white and that whole thing. So if it was night jousting in the air, their steeds were open cockpit machines made of wood, fabric, and some metal. I mean, can you believe that? Look up some of these World War I fighter planes. Uh, maybe watch a video of a restored or maintained model in flight. And it is amazing that these things even got off the ground. Not only that, they did get off the ground, and they got up to heights of 15,000 feet. By the start of the Battle of Verdun, firepower for these fighter planes had gone from pilots tossing steel darts on top of each other, yes, that's true, to shooting revolvers and rifles, to these synchronized machine guns that fired through propellers. The Germans had these on their Fokkers. It took great skill to maneuver in on your enemy, get close in a rushing dive, and then pour bullets into your target while maintaining control of your own aircraft. So way back in episode one, we talked about how in their preparations for the launch of 5th Army's attack on Verdun, the Germans had established what they called an aerial barrage over Verdun's trench lines. Their fighters swept from the sky any French recon plane or observation balloon that tried to get eyes on any enemy developments. Any supporting French fighters were also taken out. French army intelligence was left without a crucial tool in gathering information in the lead-up to the start of the battle on February 21st. To maintain their aerial barrage, the Germans had 168 aircraft assigned to the Verdun front. But their plan for maintaining their air superiority while detailed and organized thoroughly in the stereotypical German tradition, was too complicated. To maintain air supremacy, the Germans split the Verdun battlefield into many little subsectors 
in which two planes were to be assigned and patrolling at all hours. But because of fuel supply issues, the Germans could only run two-hour patrols with slower aircraft, and their screen was thin. To maintain the aerial barrage the way they wanted, the Germans really needed well over 700 aircraft. But like I just said, they just had 168. So their best laid plans were shot to pieces by the French within a few days. The French began the Battle of Verdun outmatched in the air by almost five to one odds. But like the embattled poilus of the army on the ground, within days and under inspiring leadership, the French air service got its act together and started fighting back. Within a week of the battle start, a Colonel Barre, the head of the French Service Aeronautique, had flown six of the French Air Force's total of 15 fighter squadrons to Verdun. Another eight recon squadrons flew in as well. There, under the dashing and flamboyant Major Marquis de Rose, this guy designed his own uniforms. This total of 120 planes was given a three-word mission. Sweep the skies. One of these squadrons became the famous Groupe de Sigon, otherwise known as the Storks. These were the superstars of the air war, and many of these guys were already legends by the time they arrived at Verdun. There was 20-year-old Jean Navarre, an ill-disciplined, wealthy playboy who would take down 11 Germans and fight 257 separate air battles over Verdun. When Navarre was bored, he would do highly dangerous aerobatics over the trench lines to raise the spirits of the Poilus below him. There was the ace of aces, Georges-Marie Ludovic Guinemer. At 21, he looked like an awkward teenager in a uniform that displayed all of his medals all of the time. But he was France's top fighter pilot. He was a crack shot with his mounted machine gun. And although he was a nationally recognized figure, he avoided the ladies and spent all of his time with his airplane or airplane designers. He fought recklessly, and his shooting is what saved him most of the time. Guinemer would only fight at Verdun until March 13th, when it took three Germans to get him shot out of the sky and wounded. Guinemer would go on to fight another day on the Western Front, but in September of 1917, he disappeared over the Ypres battlefield and was never found. Another member of the Storks was Lieutenant Charles Nungasser, a guy who'd already suffered so many injuries, he had to be lifted bodily into his plane. But he was such a good pilot, it was like his aircraft was an extension of himself. Nungasser had suffered a terrible plane crash that had left him with an artificial jaw and a disfigured smile that grimaced to reveal two solid rows of gold teeth. But Nungasser, man, 
he was a rock star. He would take out six Bosch planes and an observation balloon at Verdun. And this was his typical schedule. After flying all day, fighting Germans, get in a sports car, and drive down to Paris for a night of solid drinking. And the next morning, he would drive right back and be up for early morning patrols to fight again all day and redo it all over again. So the storks took to the sky and proceeded to clear it of Germans. It was at Verdun that air warfare began to gel into the form in which it was recognized during the world wars. Before the battle, the war in the sky had been a story of the knights jousting in the heavens. At Verdun, the words air and force came together for the first time. The Germans had put up the aerial barrage over Verdun, manned by a large force of airplanes. So the French retaliated with their own large force of airplanes. The storks hacked at the aerial barrage with their skills and furia francaise. Navarre racked up one of the first wins by knocking out a plane over Fort Duamont the day after the Germans took it. The storks punched right through the thin German lines in the sky without that much trouble. With gaping holes in the sky, the French fighters buzzed into German airspace over the battle zone and began to shoot up the largely helpless Drachen balloons that so accurately managed the hellish artillery. One week into the battle and the French, while struggling and shoring up the trenches on the ground, fully dominated the sky. So to counter the storks, the Germans sent in Oswald Bolke. Bolke, a handsome and sharp uniformed young officer of middle-class background, came to Verdun a legend in his own right, with nine confirmed kills in the air over France. He was also the youngest man to have been awarded the Pour le Merite, Imperial Germany's highest military medal. Bolke came in with a vengeance, swooping in on his enemies and shooting five out of the sky in the first few days he was at Verdun. He even shot down the great Guinemer. Bolke, like his counterpart Navarre, disliked killing his enemies and aimed for airplane engines when he could. By his efforts, he brought German air superiority back, forcing the French to stay behind their lines. But the French, while sullen, also took to sending out their planes in groups. It was like herding cats, but the French were throwing up sometimes up to a dozen planes to protect one or two observation planes. Not even the great Bolke could shoot his way through that. So, the French are sending out large groups? Well, Bolke would do the same. He created what he called the Jagdstaffel, or hunting group, that would be made up of four groups of three planes all working together. Bolke's own Jagdstaffel would later be called the Flying Circus by the nascent British RAF, a name that would stick. Now it was groups of fighters who came in dancing, swooping, swinging hard left or hard right while machine guns blazed rather than just one-on-one -on -one 
are one against many. Bolke was still finishing the effective deployment of his hunting groups when he was personally pulled off the battlefield by Kaiser Wilhelm II himself in June. The reason? Max Immelmann, the original German air ace, had been killed. It was a shocking blow to Germany as a whole. Bolke was second only to Immelmann, and the Kaiser was fearful of losing his next best ace and national hero as well. A flustered and frustrated Bolke was grounded. This didn't help German efforts in the air at Verdun. Then what really didn't help even more than that was the arrival of the French number 124 squadron, more famously known as the Lafayette Escadrille. A whole new group of legends had arrived, the Americans. Yes, the Americans. Since the war's beginning, there had been at a minimum hundreds of Americans who had enlisted in the French military for the usual reasons. With the U.S. decidedly still neutral in the war, they wanted in on the action, or they firmly believed in the Allied cause against the Central Powers and were going to do their part. Many drove ambulances ferrying the wounded from the front, while others fought in the trenches under the French Foreign Legion. Over time, many of these applied to the forming French Air Force and began flying. It was a Bostonian named Norman Prince who came up with the idea of a French Air Force squadron manned by American volunteers. Prince came up with the idea while still in Boston, actually. So he crossed over the pond in 1914 and spent the next year forming the Escadrille Americaine. When isolationist U.S. politicians heard about this, they, understandably, complained about the name of the unit, and the French changed it to the Escadrille Lafayette, an homage to the Marquis de Lafayette, who had assisted American forces during the Revolutionary War. The Escadrille Lafayette was officially born in April 1916, and a month later was getting at it with the Germans over Verdun. The unit initially consisted of seven Americans, all non-commissioned officers in the French army, led by two French officers. Their mascots were two lion cubs, whiskey and soda, who rounded out the unit's roster. The two French officers in command were Captain Thénault, a guy who spent his time in the air trying to herd cats as his pilots tended to fly off on their own. His second in command was a Lieutenant de la Demeux, who fought with absolutely no regard for his own safety. The seven American pilots were Victor Chapman, Elliot Cowden, Bert Hall, Lieutenant William Thaw, Norman Prince, Kiffin Rockwell, and James McConnell. Of these seven originals, four would be dead within a year of the Escadrille's formation. They lived the supernova life of the fighter pilot. The Americans took to the air with an eagerness. Within a few days of arriving, Kiffin Rockwell scored the first kill of the squadron. 
best time for organized patrols was early morning, and the squadron would suit up in fur-lined shoes and overalls and take to the skies. They flew Newports, the fastest plane in the French fleet, which were armed with 47-shot Lewis machine guns. Instead of the French tricolor painted on their sides, the Americans featured the head of a Native American warrior, which at first made their German counterparts scratch their heads. The Lafayette squadron harried and harassed the Germans, picking up where the storks had left off. On June 24th, the unit suffered a rocking blow when Victor Chapman was killed near Fort Duomo. From here on, the surviving pilots' attitudes hardened as they all personally sought to avenge their teammates' early death. They would do their patrols in the morning, return for refitting, and many would go back up on their own to hunt for German planes for the rest of the day. The Americans kept up the pressure on the Germans throughout the summer of 1916. Norman Prince took to shooting down German observation balloons with aerial rockets that were barely controlled fireworks. With the removal of Oswald Bolke from the German rosters, air superiority transitioned back over to the French in June and July, and they would hold it for the rest of the battle. In September, the American squadron, based out of the village of Lichiot, became part of a Franco-British bomber group whose mission was to fly into Germany itself and flatten the Mauser Arms Factory at Oberendorf. With more Americans being assigned to the squadron and the loss of aircraft during the previous months, Americans received a few of the latest model Newport fighters to refit the unit. Even as part of the bomber group, the boys of the Lafayette squadron were still patrolling the Verdun battlefield. Kiffin Rockwell himself was up in the skies when he saw below him a lone German observation plane over French lines. Could have been a trap. The Germans would bait the Allies with a lone plane and then swoop down with a pair of fighters to catch the unsuspecting Allied fighter. But Rockwell dived on the Bosch plane anyway. He had plenty of experience, having fought more dogfights than the rest of the squadron combined. He dove down and got in close. The enemy plane was a two-seater, with the pilot in front and the gunner seated directly behind him. The Germans opened up with the plane's two machine guns, but Rockwell dove straight at them, firing back. An eyewitness on the ground who saw the dogfight thought the German had been hit, but then saw the French plane suddenly nosedive with part of a wing missing. The Germans had hit Rockwell in the chest, with explosive bullets, killing him instantly. His plane was shredded by the fire, and with the wing torn off, it plummeted and crashed at Verdun between what has been called the first and second French trench lines. Where exactly, I haven't been able to discover in any of my research. Once the plane crashed, the Germans immediately began shelling the crash site, but nearby French artillerymen managed to recover Rockwell's body. His death hit the squadron like a sledgehammer. Kiffin Rockwell, as fellow pilot James McConnell wrote in his wartime memoir, Flying for France, had been the soul of the unit. 
Rockwell was given a military funeral attended by over a thousand soldiers. Shortly after Rockwell's death, the Lafayette Escadrille was transferred from Verdun to that other killing ground, the Somme. By mid-October, Norman Prince was dead as well, having slipped into a coma after a nighttime crash landing. After having secured back French air superiority with the help of other French units, the Lafayette Escadrille left the Verdun Arena in as good a shape as they could hope. Control of the air remained in French hands for the rest of the battle. Along with their battlefield victories, the Lafayette Squadron helped turn the tide in another battle being fought across the Atlantic Ocean. That being the Battle of Perceptions of the War in the U.S. With tales of these Americans' feats flowing to newspapers back in the U.S., the titanic struggle between the French and Germans was brought to brutal life to the average American. Verdun and his horror, with a definite anti-German slant as pronounced as the Lafayette pilot's feats were exaggerated, became very well known to Americans everywhere. Americans' views on the war began to shift. The Lafayette Escadrille scored a huge public relations victory without even trying. And that encompasses the major events of the battle in the air at Verdun. Next time, it's back to the trenches and to the story of Major Reynal and the French defense of Fort Vaux. Thanks for taking the time to listen, and I hope you're enjoying these episodes as much as I am enjoying producing them. And you know what? What better way to show how much you like these podcasts by leaving a review on iTunes? That would be awesome. As always, you can reach me through the website, battleoverdonepodcast.com, iTunes, Stitcher, FeedBurner, and the Facebook. So, we'll talk to you folks again soon. Take care.